Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. Psalm chapter 8, this is a psalm of David. Beautiful psalm here. David pens this in Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him. For you have made him a little lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. Our Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, Father, thank you this morning for the gift of your word as we just did, together corporately thanking you that this is the lamp to our feet, the light to our path, and um, certainly, God, we are in need of you to illuminate our understanding of ourselves. We've sought to know who you are, and in knowing who you are, God, may today you teach us who we are. That we might not think of ourselves too highly, that we might not think of ourselves too lowly, but through the work of your spirit today, I pray that you would help us think of ourselves rightly. We invite you to teach us today, God. You're our Father. Um, I ask Holy Spirit for you to fill inhabit, invade this space. Speak to hearts, speak through me, get me out of the way. We have ears to hear what you want to say to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we start this morning, as we get into, as I said, anthropology, I'd like to begin with a confession. I'd like to confess that I am a people watcher. Any other people watchers in the room just curious? Hey, hey guys, most of us, all of us almost. Um, this is a, a hobby of mine. I never really have trouble going to anthropology with my wife. Um, not because the store is really neat and cool. I'm talking about the store now. Not because the store <laughs> is neat and cool and artsy, but because when I get to go to the town center mall, I get to watch people. People at the town center mall. Um, it is like, it's like a zoo in and of itself. The way that we would go to a zoo to observe animals, Town Center Mall is a zoo in a sense. And you could see all sorts of beings with all sorts of fascinating characteristics. I, I, there's something about human beings. Now my wife, um, on the other hand, she calls it staring. Um, she's like, y- y- you're staring at that person. <laughs> I'm like, I'm so- I don't, and I don't realize it. 
until after she's like, the whole family's looking at you, staring at them, Andrew. And I'm just like, oh. I get this from my dad, I'm just going to say, like father, like son. Um, and the worst is, and, and then I'll point. You have, if you have a friend that does that, you're like, stop pointing. I'm like, sorry, I didn't know I was, ah, look at them, right? I didn't realize it. So I'm, I just want to say, I'm working on it. I'm working on it, okay? I'm working on when I get on an, on an airplane to just be in my seat and not enjoy the circus of this tube of humans. <laughs> have you seen like humans of New York, right? They should have a humans of flying out of South Florida, shouldn't they? The people that fly out of South Florida. Like, and I'm, my, one of my favorite moments on the plane to watch people is when the seatbelt light goes off after the landing. Bing! And you'd think that there's a race to get off this plane or that if you stood up, you could actually get off faster. I never understood that. So I usually, the bing, and I just watch everyone stand. I'm just like, I'm just going to sit while you stand right now. Um, and you enjoy the view. You enjoy, or I should rather say, you enjoy the show. Um, here's the deal. Human beings are some of the most fascinating creatures on planet Earth, for sure. Now, before you judge me, if you've ever watched, by the way, a reality show, you're guilty of this too. All right, this is, in the past decade especially, reality TV has just exploded. All these different kinds of shows. We don't want to see humans pretending to be other humans. We want to see people in their natural habitat. In normal, real-life situations. And we, we eat these shows up. We're like people. They're incredible. There's a variety of Instagram accounts that I follow that are just different kinds of people. People doing awesome things. People doing stupid things. One of my favorite, people getting hurt. I love that Instagram account. Sorry, okay? It's just funny. Not like violent pain, but just, you know, the kind of funny, somewhat painful pain. It's fun to watch sometimes. America's Funniest Home Videos kind of idea. Now, as we kind of step back for a second and maybe try to diagnose Andrew's problem, I think there's some real answers here as to why we can be so intrigued with ourselves, with our, you could say, species. What is it about human beings that are so fascinating? I'll start here. First, human beings are capable of some of the weirdest things. I'm just going to kind of stay in this vein a little bit longer. Some of the weirdest things. Um, I mentioned, obviously, the airplane, but especially where we live in Florida, the infamous Florida man, right? Some of the weirdest things. Have you ever done this trick where you can actually Google Florida man with your birthday, and you will get some kind of a headline? I just did it today for Father's Day. I said, you know what, let's try this out. People, they're amazing. They're strange. The Florida man on June 16th, here's what came up. June 16th, 2018, quote, Florida man throws samurai sword at sheriff's deputies. It's awesome. We're strange people. I started thinking about this, you know. Um, we're, we're just kind of weird, right? We're funny. I was thinking, what's a good example of this? I thought of, I don't know why. I'm sorry that you come to this church. Um, but I started thinking of planking. Remember planking? What, what are we? Now, it started big on buildings. I don't know if you can see them there on the chimney. Remember this? I'm bringing this back, by the way. This is going to trend again. Now, then what real, people had to step it up, so they started planking on animals. That's a quarter horse. This is called the double camel plank. I like this one. Um, this one's really good. This is the classic Bengal tiger plank. 
Some of you, if you don't know what this is, you're like, this is weird. That's my point, by the way, okay? It's, it's, it's this unique, strange, there's really no explanation. Just, you know as much as we do. Like, that's, that's it. Um, this is my all-time favorite. It's the fish tank plank. I like this one. That's a good one. We're weird. I mean, like, we see people start doing this unique pose in public and posting online. We go, I could do a better one capable of some of the weirdest things. Now, before you judge fish tank plank man, um, what's weird about you? I'm curious. Don't tell me. But you, you got something, don't you? Anybody, is anybody with me? Anybody weird in here? You're a little weird, okay? Like, so the rest of you who aren't raising your hands, you're weird, okay? You're weird. We, don't we all, now, if you're not raising your hand, look at your wife and say, babe, do I do weird things, okay? Weird. We, like for me, I have this weird habit that drives my wife crazy. I shake every beverage I have before drinking it, even if it's water. I, don't, I just I like try to split up the H2O molecules or something. I don't know what I'm doing. But it's just, a, it's just these weird habits, these weird knacks, these weird qualms, these weird things that we do. Humans do some of the weirdest things. Humans, not only that, but let's, let's kind of take this more to another side of the fascination of, human, of humanity. Not only do we do some of the weirdest things, but we also have achieved some of the most wondrous things. The human species, wow. I think of a guy named Alex Honnold. Maybe you've seen the best documentary, won an Oscar for the best documentary last year, a movie entitled Free Solo that documents the journey of Alex Honnold climbing the largest rock face, El Capitan, in Yosemite Park, 3,000 feet up. He does it without a rope. Without a rope. It's a journey that normally takes three to five days. Climbers with ropes will do it, and they'll camp out along the way, and Alex did it in just under four hours. It's been called by many people to potentially be the greatest athletic achievement in human history. I would definitely recommend the documentary. Incredible story, listen, of what humans are capable of. The achievements, I mean, we see them, right? We see them on SportsCenter. We see them on the field, on the court. We see them in music. These, 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 we call them kind of freaks of nature in their craft, right? The, the certain things that humans are able to accomplish. But not just achievements. Think about just on a, on a daily level. Think about all the cool things that we enjoy because of humanity. Think about food for a second. Think about a burrito. Glory to God, right? Have you ever had a bur- burrito? I had one yesterday. And I was studying for the message, and I just ate the burrito. And I was just like, humans are amazing. A burri- we combined all these raw materials, and we've, we got burrito. It's just incredible. You don't feel as affectionate about burritos as I do. That's okay. Um, but then this goes to another area of the wondrous things that humanity has accomplished, whether it's achievements, whether it's the arts or, or, or food or culture. We also think about genuinely the incredible good that humans are capable of. We'll talk in a second about the brokenness, but there is this reality that humans can do some incredible things, some good things. You think about hospitals. You think about medicines that have saved millions of lives. You think about about liberation. You think about people like Harriet Tubman. You think about people like Martin Luther King Jr. I think about 
the Facebook video that pops into your feed. I've seen this from time to time where a bunch of kids in the school, they band together. Have you seen these videos? And they buy like a pair of Jordans, a really nice pair of shoes for the underprivileged kid. I'm a sucker for those videos and I'm just there crying at Starbucks <laughs> with no shame. Because we see it, we recognize that there's something to humanity, yet there's also, let's kind of think about this for a second, there's this paradox here. These creatures that are capable of such wondrous things are on the same hand capable of some of the worst things. For every Martin Luther King Jr., there's a Hitler. There's a Genghis Khan. There's genocide. There's hate. There's violence. There's racism. This complex paradox called humanity. I, I experience this even in the morning when you wake up and you put on, the, say, the Today Show. And you get your day started and there's a show on or pick your poison, whatever news outlet you like, okay? But you, you throw it on and there in the morning as you're watching the show, you, have you experienced that? It's like first thing in the morning, it's not even 9 a.m. and you've gone through the full range of emotions. They'll feature the best of stories and they'll also feature the worst of headlines. It's like what's going on here? And listen, this paradox, it's really no farther than a look in the mirror, isn't it? Lest we go, yeah, humanity, capable of such great things, capable of such horrible things. Let's consider ourselves for a second. Think about your own life. Look into the mirror and think about in your own life all the good that God has used to accomplish. And let's take some ownership for some of the horrible things that we've done. It goes no farther than the mirror. And did you know this? Did you know that scripture does not shy away from this paradox? Scripture doesn't give us rose-colored glasses to just say, there's more good in humans than bad. We just need to let the good outweigh the bad. Nor does it let us rip off those rose-colored glasses and live in darkness and just say things like, it's all going to hell. It's horrible. There's no turning back. It's a mess. There is no good. Everyone's just depraved and broken. There is no beauty. You see, Scripture deals with this paradox. It's actually one of the reasons, I think, why a lot of people have a hard time, let's say specifically with the Old Testament. Because this is God's Word. We're going to study this. This is a book inspired by God. Why does it con contain such darkness? I mean, just the first book in the Bible has every sort of tragedy and evil you can imagine done mostly by people that are representing God. The good, the bad... And the ugly, it's everywhere from Lot and his own mistakes to a guy like Gideon who's able to kill thousands of Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. I mean, the, the, the contrast of human achievement, human greatness, and human depravity. You know, regardless of where you land today in your wrestle with that paradox that stares you in the mirror or that is out there in culture, regardless of where you're at, I think we're all led today to ask the same question. And that question is simply, what is man? As we observe the things about life, as we observe these complexities, as we look out around us, as we turn on the news and we see this spectrum of good and bad, of, of, of wondrous and, and of the worst, we, we go, who are we? Now, this is a very common question today. This is, is kind of at the center of a lot of philosophical thought today. What is man? Who are we? Most of the books you read today are all about self-discovery, right? Who am I? What, what am I here for? What makes up who I am? And isn't it interesting here in Psalm 8, in the ancient pages of Hebrew poetry, 
you have King David asking the same question. He says there in verse 4, what is man? Now David's led to ask this question in a unique way. He is, I presume, out in the field looking up at the stars in the sky. And he's looking up and seeing how grand the creation order is, how beautiful the stars are, how beautiful the moon is. And David starts to think about the fact that out of all of these pieces of creation, it's man. It's man that God is mindful of. Interesting. It's man that God comes close to and visits, right? Typically, I don't know if you've had this happen where uh, if you're flying in an airline, you look out the window. Have you ever noticed how, how like philosophically it's almost like everything's so small? People are literally small from that angle, but it, it sort of puts into perspective, man, look how small the existence is. And for David, it's not looking down, it's looking up. Looking at the stars and he goes, in light of man's insignificance, what is man? That you would be mindful of him. David asks this pressing question. It's being asked in our culture today, but what's really interesting is David's answer. What David gives us is the first the first of what I would call a few pillars of biblical anthropology. I would write this down, a few pillars of biblical anthropology. I don't have a few points for you today. I have a few pillars with a lot of points, okay? So just a lot of thoughts here, but we want to look at some pillars. David begins with one of the pillars of biblical anthropology in his answer to this question. What's amazing about David's answer is that it goes into the face in contrast with a lot of culture's answers Today, David in Psalm 8, notice what he says. What is man, verse 4, that you are mindful of him? Verse 5, he answers, for you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. That's the first answer he gives. Uh, The word angels there in Hebrew is Elohim, actually. Same word used for in the beginning, Elohim created. Now, common translators uh, bring this word to be angels, but the idea here is that man has been created lower than the divine. He's below the divine. Is that not something that our culture needs to hear in a lot of ways? The common view of culture is that we are one with the divine. The spark of the divine is within us. Who is God? God is a state of being. God is me, God is you, it's autonomy, it's individualism. And David is first going to help us not have too high a view of man. Be careful. Okay? Probably step one to understanding who man is, is to understand that they and we are not God. Right? And amen to that. Isn't that good news? Okay? Aren't you, even though we try to play God, aren't you glad that nobody in this room is God but God? Okay? We are not God. He alone is God. We've established this. So David's making sure we don't have too high a view of God. Okay, come down. Come down. Get down here, okay? You've made him, he says, lower than the angels. Yet, at the same time, notice what he says next. Though you've made him lower than the angels, you also, verse 6, have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. This is royal language. This is beautiful. You have put all things, notice this, under his feet. So here's the other extreme in culture, either too high a view of man or way too low a view of man. A view of man that says that man is just another part of the animal kingdom. As I like the way Mark Driscoll says it, the view is that we're just highly evolved apes with iPhones. We're just another part of the species. And we see there, there's a responsibility as God's people to steward creation. To, to, be, to, to care for the animal kingdom. But there are, are, are movements today that are justified in their heart to 
rescue endangered species, but you have today in our culture this view that in some ways elevates the life of even animals over man. It's crazy. It's too low a view of man. We are just some sort of incidental, accidental species. David says, no, no, no. You're not God, but you're more than that. Lower than the angels, lower than the divine, higher than the created order. Now, David describing this, where is he hearkening back to? He's hearkening back to the beginning, the book of Genesis. Can you turn there with me, Genesis 1? Turn there with me, Genesis 1. Genesis 1. I hear like one Bible flipping. That's, that's okay. Maybe you have the app. I'll just, I'll just believe the best, okay? Genesis 1. It's not going to be up on the screen, okay? Genesis 1. Turn there with me. David is going to the right place to give us our first pillar, okay? Um, he's going to the beginning, right? Uh, in the be- beginning, you have pillar 1, which is the creation of man. That's what we're looking at, the events surrounding the creation of man. It's the first pillar, the creation of man. Um, by the way, this is where we probably all naturally default to anytime we're trying to find out more about ourselves. Maybe you've done this. Maybe you wanted to know a little bit more about yourself and your heritage, so you went back, right? You traced back. You sent in some DNA, or, or you asked mom and dad some hard questions, right? And you're trying to get some more info on your heritage. Where did we come from? And that's what David is helping us with. He goes, if you want to know who you are, you've got to get back to your origin story. Okay, your origin story. Now, for us, it's not that we were bit by radioactive spiders or anything, unfortunately. Um, that's, a, that's a joke about superheroes. But um, it is, in our origin story, much better than Wolverine, much better than Spider-Man. We were created, created by God. Look at Genesis 1, verse 26. As God is creating all that is, as he is speaking it into being and and He's evaluating his work and calling it good. He gets to the sixth day where God says, Let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, same language as the Psalms, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the birds of the air, over the, sorry, I read that verse twice, the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Look at this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every other living thing that moves on the earth. Here's the origin story. Man created by God. The creation of God, the first pillar here. And let's look at a few observations. The first thing we see about mankind is that we see man was designed by God's plan. I think this is a huge overlooked point. I love that when God gets to create man... The way in which he goes about it is different than everything else he's created up until this point. Prior to creating man, God has simply said, I want that to happen. And guess what? When God wants something to happen, it happens. So he says, let there be light. And you better believe the light's turned on. Okay? And so forth and so on. But as he gets to man, there is this almost divine counsel in conversation. Let us make man in our image. This is the Father, Son, and Spirit, three and yet one in perfect harmony and community, communicating as the Trinity. And they are, listen to this, they are planning the creation of man. This is antithetical to common thought that says that man exists out of incident or accident. 
The existence of man is not accidental. It didn't just happen. Nor is it incidental. This equaled this, and all of a sudden now this. The creation of man, as we see here in Genesis 1, was intentionally designed by God. The intentional design. We see this even today. Uh, it's true for us as well. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. This is what, where we see God speaking to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 1, 5, God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I love this, I knew you. Isn't that incredible? In Psalm 139, the way David says it is, You saw me even before I was formed as me. The foreknowledge of God, of our existence. Uh, th this is um, hopefully for us an encouragement. An encouragement that your life matters. If there was not God, let's be honest, it would for a little, but in the blip of time, it wouldn't. But you are not on earth out of incident. You are not in the seat you're in, breathing the air you're breathing on accident. You are here because God intended for you to come into existence. It says in Revelation 4.11 that God is worthy to receive glory and honor and power for he created all things and it's by his will that all things exist and are created. And guess who that includes? Okay, That includes you, that includes me. God designed man, designed by God's plan, his intention. Uh, but notice also secondly that man is... Uh, secondly, I don't have it up there. I deleted it on accident. But write this second one down. Man is also formed by God's hand. Write that down secondly. Designed by God's plan, but man was formed by God's hand. This is also a cool thing about the creation of man. Everything else exists because God speaks it, but it's man that God gets his hands involved in in the creation. God gets his hands dirty, so to speak. It's, it's verse uh, 7 of chapter 2 where the Bible says that the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. We also see this with Eve, as God is, is forming Eve from the rib of Adam. Regardless of what you walk away from this, here's the idea that God's touch is on humanity. Amen. His special touch. David says it so poetically in Psalm 139, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139 verse 14. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed and in your book they were all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. What a marvelous creator. Do you know God to be that close to you? That he made you who you are on purpose. He formed you to be who you are. And you know what this says? This says that humanity has in a unique way God's sacred touch to it. And therefore there is a certain, listen closely, there is a certain sacredness to humanity. There really is. This might not be a popular idea where we kind of want to put everything in creation on even keel. And certainly there's, there's, we'll be honest, but we'll talk about this. There has been abuse of man's power in this world. This world is not how it was supposed to be. Man has not done their job stewarding this earth. But nonetheless, there is a certain sacredness in God's creation of man. There's a sacredness first to human life. 
So this is why there's so much battle today with the pro-life, pro-choice world. And I'm not going to get too far into this except to say this. From a genuine place of conviction, a Bible-believing Christian, it's not that we are not against people having freedom. It's not that we are against people having rights. But deep in our bones, there's this deeper feeling that no human has the right to stop what God's creating. And I'm not saying that for an amen, I'm saying that to get us to think deeply about why why do we feel this way? And if you have a different opinion, maybe it's for you to think, why does that person feel that way? The reason why Christians, most of them are pro-life, a lot of Bible-believing Christians, is because there is this belief that as uh, the fetus is being formed in the mother's womb, God is not disconnected, letting the created order play out, but God's hands are involved in the formation of that fetus. So so there's this this feeling of, I know you have rights, but nobody has the right to kill what God is creating. That's where that conviction comes from. And there should be room to have conversation about that. Why have you arrived at your conclusion? But this is the conviction that there's a sacredness to human life. Listen, there's also a certain sacredness to race. If God's hands were involved in in your creation, there's a sacredness. Racism is antithetical to the gospel. There is neither, no no longer Jew or Gentile, black or white. God doesn't respect persons because of the privilege of their skin. Or the lack of privilege of their skin. Or the denial of privilege of their skin. Okay, we'll make sure we cover every base there, okay? The idea is that God loves and created people, people. Every color, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Amen? There's also a certain, certain, listen, there's a sacredness to, I want to say this, to gender and sexuality. Another kind of hot topic, but there is in this created order, there's a sacredness to male and female. Both beautifully complementary to one another. Biologically, anatomically, but also spiritually. Practically, there's a, there's a sacredness to sexuality. Just as we don't violate race, we seek not to violate sexuality. All made by God's touch. And then write this down, we see creation. It's also made, created rather, in God's image. And this is where this is going, right? Created in God's image. Um, that's what he goes on to say. Man is especially formed by the hands of God. Man is formed from the plans of God, but we see specifically that as this divine counsel is planning the formation of man, they say that this creature, this creation of ours, is going to uniquely bear our image. They're going to uniquely be made in our likeness. And there's a lot of conversation and debate today about what do those two words mean? What does image mean? What does likeness mean? Some people say this means that, that means this. Uh, I think the plainest reading of this is that these are synonyms for the same thing. And here's what it is saying without getting too deep. The idea of mankind being made in God's image is that human beings are more like God than anything else in creation. Let's keep it simple. Human beings are more like God than anything else in in creation. That's what God intended, that we would seek to mirror God as his creation to this world. That the rest of this world could see what God is like by watching how man is like. And there was this sense in which man, David talks about it, was the crown of God's creation. So in, in a special way, we were the pinnacle of God's creation. Now, when we talk about this image, this, this sense in which we are distinguished from all of creation, um, 
what we're, we're talking about is a few different things. There's also a lot of debate about this. What does it mean to be made in God's image? How are we like God? Let, let me give you five mostly agreed upon things. We are, we are mostly like God. We resemble his image first spiritually. Okay? There is a spiritual component to how we bear God's image. Okay? Um, uh, cats, I was talking to someone about a cat, as lovely as they are, dogs, as cute as dogs, I love dogs, right? They don't get together and call out to God. They don't, they don't do it, okay? Sorry. All right? Listen, God knows if you need your pet in heaven for it to be heaven. I'm just going to say that. He knows. But the scriptures say in a unique way that it's man that has eternity in their hearts. There's a spiritual dimension to man that is unique to man. God is spirit, made in his image. We have the capacity to be spiritual. There's a moral component. This is different than instinct. This is written into the very code of our DNA to have a conscience, to know right from wrong, to discern good from evil. It points back to a moral lawgiver who put that in there in the first place. But there's this moral dimension to humanity, to feel. There's desensitization to that. There's major issues that are keeping us from the moral absolutes that God has written in his word and in many ways put within our DNA. Like I hear a lot of people argue with this and they go, well, what about the cannibals? Now, what's interesting about the cannibals, okay, you know, the cannibals, our friends. I called one the other day and I was asking him, what's up with your moral compass, cannibal? No, I didn't say, okay. But people say, well, I mean, if, if there's just this written DNA, how come you go to villages and there's people cannibalizing? And here's what, if you get to meet Mr. Cannibal, okay, ask him, now, uh, throughout your time as a cannibal, um, did you ever, did anybody ever try to eat you? How did you like that? I didn't like it. Why? It's not what I, I value life. Hmm. Hmm. You see the idea? It's written on our hearts, this idea to discern what's valuable and what's not. So there's this spiritual dimension, there's this moral dimension, there's this intellectual dimension. Sometimes humans are not the smartest creatures okay, in humanity. When we're out in the ocean, we're not the smartest one in that ocean. We don't have the greatest abilities when we're free diving. There's other creatures that are a little better at what we're doing than us. We might not be the smartest, but God created man in his image to have a greater intellectual capacity than any other creature overall. To build, to create, to form families, to form communities, to create culture. There's a relational component made in God's image who is a relationship. Father, Son, and Spirit were made in his image. We were created for relationship. We see that with Adam in the story of his creation. It wasn't good for him to be alone. Okay? We are relational beings. You are incomplete if you're doing life in isolation. That's not your intended design. That's not what you were made for. You can't fully be human alone. You were created in God's image to be relational, to be known and to know. And then there's this physical component to it. There's this sense in which all throughout the scriptures, right, uh, most evident in Jesus, God is, you know, Jesus is God manifested in the flesh. We're going to talk more about the person of Christ in the coming weeks, but um, God chose to manifest himself in the form of a man. 
And it's not that God is a man. God is spirit. He is God. He created man in his image. So we, we don't create God in our image, but there's a sense in which all throughout the scriptures, God will use anatomical language, what's also called uh, anthropomorphic language, the, the language of man, metaphor of man, to help us understand him. So the Bible says things like God sees, God hears, God speaks, okay? God pursues, God listens. And the idea here is that it's, it's language to say, now God doesn't have eyes and ears like we do. He doesn't have to get nice black frame glasses to see the world better. But in those same ways he made us, he is that way. And then lastly, we want to see this, that God made us, humanity is made for God's purpose, for God's purpose. So creation, humanity, designed by God's plan, formed by God's hand, design, uh, cr- created in God's image, and then made for God's purpose. You're saying, oh, I didn't see that purpose there. It's actually in, in chapter 2. Would you flip over chapter 2? In Genesis 2, verse 8, it tells us that after God forms man from the dust of the earth, Genesis 2, verse 8, tells us that God had a purpose for creating man. It says, the Lord God planted, verse 8 of chapter 2, a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made every tree grow that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, check us out. This is, might lull you out, but I want you to follow this. Now, a river went out of Eden to water the garden. From there it parted and became the four riverheads. The name of the first is Pashan. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havalah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium is the, and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gahan. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hadakel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. So God takes man, puts him in a garden that's filled with beautiful raw material. You see this? Gold and onyx and silver, fruit trees and, and plants. It's this beautiful raw potential creation. It says in verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. Now, a very key part of this story is that as God puts man in the garden to do his job, he could not do it until the woman was brought by his side. God goes, this isn't really working out. Uh, we need, you, you, need, you need help. Husbands say amen, maybe, right? Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's not, it wasn't until God created Eve that at the end of Genesis 1, the account tells us, God goes, very good. <laughs> I love that. Everything else was good, good, very good. That's good for the man, okay? Um, and so check out this beautiful picture, this beautiful vision, this God vision of mankind created by his plan, by his hand, in his image, for this purpose. Man and woman, co-laborers together to be stewards of God's creation. Not to vacation in the Garden of Eden in a hammock with a mojito. It's not what's going on here. What's going on here is this mandate, this what's called the cultural mandate. God said, I'm putting you in this garden to tend it, to keep it, to cultivate it. From this, this passage, you get the word culture comes out. Create culture. Take the raw materials and, and, and multiply it and cultivate it and, and let it spread. Take this garden and turn it into a city. And then spread to other cities and cover the whole earth with this great vision of, of human flourishing to the glory of God. And who knows? Like I always think, like, what if man finished that? God, I wonder if he would have been like, all right, next planet. Who knows? C.S. Lewis kind of speculates about that stuff. I, I don't know. I, I wasn't there. Okay, But 
What we do know is there's this incredible God vision. Here's what I want us to see. As God created man, as God gave man this purpose, the task he gave him, this is huge, was built on trust. This relationship that God had, this covenant he had with man and woman, was built on trust. I mean, think about for a second the amount of trust that God is putting in these newly created beings who have never done the whole tending and keeping the earth thing before. It'd be like you get a new car and someone who's never driven before, you're like, can you drive this home for me? Think about the trust involved here. Think about the graciousness and the generosity of God here to say, this is my creation, but I haven't created it complete. I've created it good. I've given you the raw materials and humanity. I'm going to create you, and we together, we're going to carry this world forward. You're going to help me maintain its beauty and draw out its raw potential, and I'm giving you the keys. Go ahead. Trust. Trusting you with it. It's amazing. I mean, think about the last thing that you created and just giving it to somebody for them to do whatever they want with it. It's amazing. Trust because it's a relationship. And every relationship is built on trust. But this is huge. Notice this. Mutual trust. Here's an unhealthy relationship. Certainly a relationship with no trust. That's unhealthy. Maybe right now your relationship, neither person trusts the other. Not a good thing. Another unhealthy relationship is one-sided trust. I trust you, but you don't trust me. Or you trust me, but I don't trust you. Healthy relationships are made up of mutual trust. So God entrusts man with creation. And God says, here's the deal. There's nothing else before you except blessing and goodness and good time. You're married. You don't have fig leaves on yet. Okay, I'm trying to keep it PG. Okay, it's a good time to be alive. Good food. Bless. Look at all these. Look at all the food. But I need you to trust me on something. Just trust me. You can't eat from that tree. Okay? It, it's not bad because it's forbidden, but it's forbidden because it's bad. I'm keeping you from, by the way, we need to recapture sin in this way. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden by God because it's bad. And God is guarding humanity from this tree because he knows the destruction that will come to that relationship if man cannot trust God back. Trust me. I'm good. The tree is destructive. Trust me. Can I say that um, that is, a, by the way, the goal of parenting. Can I just talk about fathers for a second? This is definitely going to become a part two sermon, but 42-ologies. Um, I was thinking about this the other day and, and was, um, was really moved by this idea that um, I don't want kids that are perfect. I want kids that trust me. Dad, you don't need perfect kids. You need a, you need a son, you need a daughter that can trust you. We want them to trust us when we give them the right decisions. But you want, listen, you want to be the kind of dad that they trust enough to go to when they screw up. They trust you. They trust you. And that's all that God was calling for from humanity. Would you just trust me? Trust me. Now, 
Wouldn't it be great news if this was the only pillar of anthropology? (laughs) What went wrong? Write this down. Pillar two is the fall of man. Genesis 3 begins that now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the trees of the garden, but of the, of the tree of the, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. He never said that, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, by the way, where's Where's Adam? You will not surely die, the serpent says. You're not going to die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God says, trust me, trust me, trust me. Just trust me. Look at all the blessing. We focus so much on what Adam and Eve couldn't do. We forget how much God put before them. And here comes Satan as cunning as ever. And Satan leads Adam and Eve to question three things about God. First, his command. Did God really say that? Come on. I mean, really, like, is God, God really said that? It's the, come on, it's 2019. Did he really say that? Did he really tell you to do that? Come on. Questioning God's command. Next is a question of God's competence. First question says, did God really say? But the next question is, does God really know? Come on, you're not going to die. What is and the third is questioning God's character. Is God really good? Did he really say that? Does he really know best? Were his motives actually pure in telling you not to? Are you sure, are you sure God has your best interest in mind? What a thing we question on a daily basis, isn't it? Is God really good? I mean, I mean, come on. You know, here's why I think he told you. He knows that if you eat that, you're going to become like him. Questioning God's character. Now, notice the contrast here. This, by the way, this is temptation. God, quote, I'm good. The tree is bad. Trust me. Satan, God is bad. The tree is good. Trust me. And man falls. Man falls into sin. We know the story. If you don't know by now, they ate the fruit. Um, Eve eats first. Adam comes and follows. It's been said that that the first sin of man was not one of abuse, but of apathy. We tend to know the sinfulness of man today as being abusive. That certainly is a character trait in man that is sad, that's destructive. But listen, fathers, husbands, men, abuse is dangerous. Apathy, destructive. When you don't show up, when you're not there, when you're not being who she needs you to be, when you're not being where they need you to be, they need you. And so here is the fall of man. And what does Romans tell us? Romans 5.12 tells us that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death, and death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. So you have here what's wrong with the world. You have here what's wrong with us. It's worth saying that in this moment, I want to say this, that it's not, it's not that um, God's image is, by the way, there's people that teach this, that God's image is no longer on us because of sin. But that's all throughout the New Testament. We're still made in God's image. Uh, one author said it this way, through sin, the image of God is not erased, but it is defaced. You see, that sin, it spreads to all of us. So every person in this room We were made to be in God, in his image, but now as we are born into this world, the Bible teaches that we are born in Adam. 
We're in Adam. And in Adam, we have two things looming over us that we are not just victims of, but that we are guilty of. We are all contributors in this corporate global rebellion against God. Before we look at Adam and say, Adam, why'd you eat the fruit? You know, I'm more of a vegetable guy. I wouldn't have done that. We look in the mirror and we see how many times do I fail to trust that God is good? How many times do I bite into what I know God has said is destructive, what I know God said is going to kill me, that's sin. In fact, the scripture says it plainly. It says it that, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. Adam fell, we are fallen, we are always falling, amen? Like, let's just be real. We all have sinned. And the scripture goes to paint this picture of humanity. We sin because we're sinners and we're sinners because we sin. And there's this death, the Bible says, this death that is created between us and God. Death. Separation from God. Brokenness in our relationships. The reason why things aren't the way that they were. We were created to have this oneness in our relationship with God. This oneness in our relationship with each other. This oneness with our relationship even with ourselves. To know who we are. This oneness in our relationship with this world. But all of that has become shattered like a bull in, the ch in a china shop through sin. I mean, let's just for a second, let's own this. What have you broken? I don't have enough sermons to tell you all the things I've broken. All the things, I mean, how have you fallen? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The problem is that we, like Adam and Eve, we no longer get to walk with God the way they did before sin. What ends up happening in the story, you know it, is that they end up hiding from God. You see the separation? Shame. Let me cover myself. You, you see, you, you, you can read it yourself and see how, how relevant their response to their sin is. It's so much like us, blame shifting, trying to cover it up. But the issue at stake here is a separation between us and God. So much so that here's what the scriptures teach. Humanity, this pillar, was made in the image of God, created for God. But through sin, humanity still bears the image of God, but that image has been defaced through sin. Like, like a beautiful piece of architecture, that's, you, we would say it's the defacing of public property when someone graffitis on it. That's what's happened to humanity. We've been defaced by sin. No longer reflecting God the way we were intended. And here's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves as those that are not only fallen and broken, but the language of scripture, it actually makes us out to be a lot worse than we would like to imagine, right? I just have some issues. I just make some mistakes. When you read Romans 3, where we just quoted, and you see Paul's description of humanity, there's words like wicked. Now, I know when you hear the word wickedness, you think of someone else. You think of some witch from the West or some Broadway play, okay? Or sinful or, or evil even. But listen, did you know that these are the words that God, even Jesus, uses to describe humanity? Wickedness, sinfulness. And listen, it's, it's, it's a big deal because this God, we learned about him last week, not only is he gracious, but he's a God of righteousness and justice, and so as those who have committed crimes against him, where humanity finds themselves is standing in judgment before him. 
judgment for sin. No wonder we hide from God. We should. Now, if the service ended here, and if anthropology ended here, don't come back next week. I don't know why you'd want to live. You see, there is a man in history who changed anthropology. I mean, up until the, that point, anthropology, same story. But there is this one man that sort of threw a curveball at what we thought we knew about anthropology. I thought humans were made in the image of God but are broken and sinful. What is up with this carpenter from Nazareth who claims to be the Messiah who has never sinned? How, I thought humans, all they do is they go everywhere and they screw everything up. But everywhere this Messiah goes, he touches people and what's broken becomes whole. The blind they see, the deaf they hear, the dead or raised. You have what, what starts to look like the reversal of a curse. What kind of man is this? You know what Pilate said about Jesus? He said, behold the man. Who is this man? First Timothy tells us who this man is. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.5 that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. He's the mediator. He's the one mediator. He's the only mediator. He's the man, okay? He's the man. Jesus is the man. Yeah, yeah, you can clap for him. He's the man, listen, listen, who is God manifested in the flesh. He is the man who comes, listen, so that we no longer have to cover ourselves when we sin. This sinless man goes to a cross and he takes upon his own sinless life our sin so that we could be covered in his righteousness. So that though we were broken men, though we were fallen men, we could become saved men. Saved men. The Bible teaches that whoever calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Will be saved. That's the last pillar there, the salvation of man. Through the God-man, Jesus Christ, who goes to a cross, bears our sin, overcomes death, and all those who trust in the Lord will be saved. Ephesians 2 tells us this so simply, that it is by grace that we have been saved, and not ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Okay, there, there's not one person in heaven chest-bumping themselves in the mirror because they got there. You know what's in heaven? Kneeling at the feet of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you traded places with me. Thank you, Jesus, that though I was fallen, you lifted me up. Thank you, Jesus, that you fell. That you became sin. You didn't sin, but you became sin on my behalf so that I could become the righteousness of God in you. And then with you, with this, here's what you get. We'll close with this. You get the renewal of man. Check this out. Created man, fallen man, through Jesus, saved man. And it's more than just, I get to be right with God now. Here's what the scriptures teach. That Jesus doesn't just do a work for me in history. He does a work in me presently. And he makes me new. He renews me. Even though so much of me still, still bears the image of my father Adam. 
The Bible says I'm no longer in Adam. I now get to be in Christ. Renewed. Renewed. It speaks of it a few ways. First, it says we have been renewed. You need to understand this, that if you are in Christ, if you have been saved through your faith in what Jesus has done and not what you can do, if your trust is in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, the sinless life of Jesus, if you trust in Jesus as your Savior, you have been renewed. You're new. You're not who you were, no matter how how often you're drawn to what you were. No matter how often you resurrect those old habits, you're new in Christ. It says it so emphatically that if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So I love the way that, that a lot of scholars will say it. They say when you look at the Bible, you have three narratives. You have creation. You have decreation. But in Christ, you have recreation. New creations. I'm new, a new heart. No longer the old sinner. In Christ's eyes, I am righteous. I'm new. But it's not just that I love this. I'm also being renewed. Can I get an amen? Amen. It's a process, is it not? Because you're like, that's good news. I'm new. But when I look in the mirror, I see nothing but old. And I'm not talking about age, okay? I see old. I see the old. And this is what Ephesians tells us. This is called sanctification, by the way. Ephesians 4 says that we should, as those who are new in Christ, we should put off concerning our former conduct, right? The old man, that man who's in the image of Adam, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust, and we are called to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, I should say, and put on, look at this, the new man, like an outfit. Like just when you came here today, you, you're like, I look good. And you walked out the door, you put on that outfit. We are to put on, every day we're to put on Christ, we're to put off the old, sanctification, put on the new, which was created, look at this, according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And lastly, we'll end with our hope here. I'll invite the worship team to close us out with our song. Lastly, the good news that we will be renewed. You have justification. I'm saved from the penalty of sin. I'm a new person in Christ. I am now no longer in Adam. I am now in Jesus. Anthropology because of Jesus, part two. I am being renewed. This is sanctification. Every day, each and every day, I'm seeking to put off the old, put off the Adam, put on Jesus. Like an outfit I've worn for too long. I throw it off and I put on Jesus. And then written into the the heart of the promises of God's word, written into our hearts as those who are walking through a journey here on earth, there is this promise that one day we will be renewed. That recreation, we have this great ending to to the story of history at the end of the Bible where God says, behold, I make all things new. I love 1 Corinthians 15. Just put this in your pocket when you go to lunch. Check this out. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Do you have any loved ones that have been sick, that have passed away? Do you know anybody who's suffering right now in life? What hope there is in Jesus? This fallen, broken state because of sin, it may be what it is, but it's not going to be what will be. Through Jesus, we have this great hope of being new creations. Let's give God a hand. Praise Him for who He is. Thank you, Lord. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out soulschurch.com. 